Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. to this week's edition of the Group Chat Podcast here at Virgin Media News. I am news correspondent Richard Chambers, joined as always by my dear colleagues, news correspondent Zara King. Hello, how are you? Good. And political correspondent Gavin Riley. It's nice that we're dear colleagues. Yeah. Dear colleagues. Nice little Elevating affirmation. You. We missed yeah. you terribly. I, I was away week. for a week yeah. and I've, I've come yes. with renewed gladness in my heart. Absence <laughs> makes the heart grow slightly I was like, deeper. you know what? I mean, we did obviously do a, a bonus Missile. in between. Um, no, no, <laughs> but like, I mean, no, it's no. not that I didn't miss doing the podcast, but it's nice to have a break from work every so often. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, Especially yeah, this yeah. time of year, I actually find yes, it's good to have something in the in the depths of midwinter mm. because it does get busy, even just you know socially coming up to Christmas. Seems to be sort of well rested for the the end of your work rush and the Christmas party. Is your calendar filling up? Is that is this? I feel like it is to be honest. Actually, not not necessarily socially. Just I do feel like the end of the year, there's lots of ad mini bits that you. Mm. I guess stuff you like, put in the long well, finger like our boss is chasing me to fill in your end of year you know your oh. end of year paperwork and all that kind of stuff so we're still sort I'm of I'm not going to mention that, that war yeah it is nice to have a break though at that time when the clocks have gone back and suddenly everything just feels a bit glummer that for you yes. a bit of a getaway yeah. it's very nicely timed it was good it was good and you've had a personal best in the running as well I did did the run in the dark last congratulations. night congratulations yeah. uh, so that went well I was going to take it easy as you do for so a fun you're back run. back now because you were saying you were going to physio for a while there yeah you? I yeah. physio again tomorrow so maybe this will be all completely out of date and I'll be you know <laughs> benched again <laughs> if you're told to take it uh, easy but yeah so it was a good good time off so yeah run in the dark and I'm doing the Clintarf half marathon then this weekend it should be fun hopefully another well it's the first I've ever run at that point I was going to say like, have you ever done a half marathon before no okay so new ground to be struck um, and so this is exciting as you said about your birthday by the way happy birthday absolutely happy birthday um, Bo's also lost the FBI Cup final I wasn't so. going to bring it up actually I, was I mean you got to you had like I literally was like let's not bring that up with you we're not going to say it's a nice weekend let's not go there it was your birthday week we weren't going to do it to you so I'm sorry thanks Bo's Always, always reliable. But Waterford United's been promoted, though, yeah. which is obviously very exciting. The Blues are back, mm. so they're back. Yeah, so maybe perhaps we'll see a Waterford United Bows game next season. Absolutely, you and I will go to that with you. There you go. UCD got relegated, but Man United are the most informed team in the Premier League. So easy come, easy go. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Again, you know, it's 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 the roundabout of sport, is what it is. Roundabouts as well in RTE because now they have the plan. Mm. The plan has been unveiled, uh, and they've also been given all the money. Uh, not all the yeah, money, but they've the been money. given, but they've basically well, been they've, indicated. They've been told they're going to get the money, but some of the money is being held back until they do the things that they said they were going to do in order to qualify for the money. Explain the things, Gav. So the things are largely what are included in this new strategic vision for RTE, which was uh, briefed by Kevin Backers to RTE staff on Tuesday. Uh, quite unfortunately, managed to make its way into some elements of the media on Monday, which mm. meant that a lot of RTE staff 
found out about the prospect mm. of significant job cuts in their organisation by getting push alerts from other outlets, not hearing it from Which their own Which is always line management. a terrible way to handle like, things. I'm just going to be straight every, every journalist is, of course, going to report something significant when it comes to the strategic future of RTE, but it is crummy that staff would find out in such a way. But nonetheless, that when is one of the elements. When you're a journalist yourself, though, it's particularly crummy, I have to say. I think it's a bit... Yeah. I, 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 you think yeah. you have an understanding of it, but you also know that it's just a bit crap. Yeah, yeah. But, is there any indication where the leak would have emanated from? Is this something that was presented, the plan was presented to government and then it leaked out of government? Or was this just because of so many people who had knowledge of this plan as it was being made up yeah, and so submitted? The plan was submitted to, to senior ministers in government. So basically the line minister, Catherine Martin, and by extension then the coalition leaders yeah. uh, last Friday, which meant that they and their inner circles and teams of advisors would have been stewing over its contents over the weekend. And it, it made its way out through political correspondence. I think the first person mm. to do reporting on it was Pat Lee, even the Irish Times. So you, you can imagine that it probably made its way out through the, the armory of people, officials and politicians that are around government buildings rather than from RTE directly. And to be fair, RTE, even when they were approached for, for comment about it on Monday after those initial reports, were understandably very reticent to comment on anything because their view was the staff needs to know first. Um, anyway, as regards the substance of the deal, um, the plan proposes uh, eliminating or reducing RTE's headcount by way of full-time staff by 20% over yep. the next five years. That uh, translates to somewhere between 350 and 400 jobs, mm -hmm. uh, which are going to be cut. There's going to be the closure of some services, like four of the digital radio stations, the RT 1 plus 1 and 2 plus 1 uh, services are all going to be cut. There's going to be a downsizing of the campus in Montrose, which will result in some uh, areas being moved to Cork and over time also to Galway and Limerick. And also, whether this amounts to a slimming down of internal stuff isn't clear, but that they're going to be involved in more commissioning of external independent programming, which a lot of people think will mean that people who currently work for RTE making those programs in-house will probably be let go mm. because that programming will now be done by outside bodies instead. Yeah, and it was described by the unions and staff then in RT because of that, mm. you know, farming out as they see it mm. of key RT functions, which is to create Irish programming mm -hmm. to independent private companies. That This is some, in some ways a privatisation or a hollowing out of RT and its responsibilities. I mean, is that, a, is that sad to see, Zara, that we are seeing, you know, this is going to be a very different RT by the yeah. time all this is done than the one that we've all grown used to. Yeah, definitely. And I think, look, you know, the reality is like people will see certain staff members in RT who are on TV and in front of the cameras and that's their understanding of the organisation. But actually, there's so much more that happens behind the scenes. And actually, I had a chance to meet a lot of those staff when I was over covering the demonstrations during the summer. Um, people who work in the background who are crucial and instrumental to, you know, getting the crews dispatched, for example, and the programmes on air and the resources and things. So, yeah, it is a big change. I mean, look, I think... The reality is that something had to change. It had to be a watershed moment what unfolded in RTE. Um, but it is unfortunate to see that at the bottom line here will be staff members who had nothing to do with the misappropriation of, of you know, spending money or not spending money mm. that had nothing to do with any of the top end of the scandal and they're the ones who will mm. find themselves losing their jobs and that's actually the real problem here. Which mm. is actually just worth reflecting on that note because a lot of attention has been paid to the fact that there will now be a de facto pay cap for anyone, including contractors like external mm. uh, presenters working in RTE, how none of them will be allowed to earn more than the Director General, which at present is 250 grand a year. And people have singled out, well, that, that affects a sum total of three people. Now, obviously, if you are Joe Duffy or Claire Byrne or Mary McCallaghan and you're being asked to take a pay cut the next time there's a contract, it's a bit of a blow for you. But that's three people out of like 1,800. And a, a fifth of those people are going to lose their jobs outright. In the grand scheme of things, like I wouldn't want to be taking a pay cut from 300,000 down to 250, but it's a good problem to have. But that that is a very small saving that will be made from three people's salaries 
Whereas by comparison, there's going to be a fifth of people who are losing their jobs entirely mm. and not all of them will be able to find their feet in the independent sector making the same programming on an external basis. Mm. A lot of those people will probably have to yeah. change careers. So so in terms of the 400 people who are going to be leaving the company over between now and 2028, uh, a lot of those people are going to be people who are just going to retire and uh, their jobs aren't going to be replaced. There will be a voluntary scheme. Of course, Kevin Backhurst last month said that RT couldn't afford such a scheme even if it wanted to have one but he says it's changed on that front basically he said that it's this the money for this uh, the immediate scheme uh, voluntary, voluntary redundancy scheme which will basically take, come into effect next year it's going to come from the sale of Montrose land which has already taken place mm. so from the pre-sale Montrose land there's basically a bit of cash reserve from that which they're putting aside to that that's where they're channeling that to fund that um, as well as that couldn't they have afforded it before now then if they just chosen to tap into that money I don't know okay. well okay. I've had to go through the books I suppose yeah. but anyway um, another thing as well is that the people are going to be looking uh, or offering these voluntary redundancies for their, the, the main area they're going to be targeting is people who are earning over 100,000 euro mm. um, so that is something which is worth bearing in mind as well is that they I think that they are aware um, of the potential backlash, as you say, are to mm-hmm. people who are the lower earning people, the more regular workers in RTE, um, effectively bearing the brunt. So they're trying to make sure that, in terms of how this is all presented, where some of the sort of the bigger issues are, um, that they are looking at sort of the more higher earners. There are a lot of people in RTE who do earn over one hundred thousand euro mm. per annum, whether that be presenters, correspondents, or managers. Yeah, uh, and they're the people going to be looking it's at about one hundred and ten of them, I think, one hundred and twenty. Do you remember the PAC was given a list, anonymized list of the top hundred earners, and I think the hundredth highest earner was on about one hundred and ten thousand. So you can probably surmise that there's maybe about one hundred and twenty or thirty, one hundred and twenty or thirty people who are on six-figure salaries. So you, you can target them, but a lot of them are also... But if you're looking for 400 people, then it, it still means that like roughly 300 people exactly. just under yeah. that are going to be, you know, in that situation. Look, it's like, it's a very difficult situation for, for the staff and to you. But Richard, you know, when we talk about things like particularly, say, reinvestment in like Cork and, you know, regional offices, yeah. that's not a bad thing. That's no bad thing. You know, I mean, it's... I think, yeah. It's long overdue in Cork. I, I think there's a lot in the, the outline of this plan. There will be a more up-to-date, more fuller plan presented um, basically by the start of next year. Uh, there are some things which are quite positive and they're long overdue, as yeah. you say, a more regional balance. There is too much of a Dublin focus in terms of the volume and the quantity of things which are made by RTE, the national broadcaster, mm-hmm. uh, purely around Dublin, uh, as well as that, the refocusing on digital, which is what something they've been... I mean, RTE have been banging the drum about investing in digital for a long, long time. Mm. One of the things... a new player now. Exactly, yeah. A new player, which is something mm. which everybody and their mother has been complaining about for donkey's years now, uh, incessantly. Still now, I would be... say to their credit, though, the website is very good. I think the news website is very good yeah. to its credit. Mm. And I think their news app is very good, actually. There's a new news app. Yeah, I think to well. their credit, those things are very good. So, yeah, and I think this is, this is part of the overall plan. And it is, because this is the thing, you aren't just trying to sell this plan to the staff and not just trying to sell it to the government, you're also trying to sell it to the public. So what's in it for the public? Because you need the public to start paying their TV licenses again. Mm. So you, whatever, whatever is in this plan... How do you get people to do that though? This is what you have to do. You have to make sure that they feel that they're getting value for money, that there's, a not, there's, there's not too much fat on the bone here for RT, that it's not this largesse and excess mm. that mm. people have seen in doll committees over the last number of months in that summer of drama, um, that they want to see value for money, they want to see a better digital product. The front face of RT needs to be a lot more accessible and a lot more value for money than it has mm. been. And I think digital is probably the, where people are going to interact with RT a lot more than even just having the TV or the radio on in the background. Something of a double-edged sword though, isn't it? Because if you have to start cutting back on services of people that feel like they're getting value for money, those who were already paying, the, the, the very slim majority who are still paying the 160 euro every time it falls due, 
they're now going to feel like they're getting less value for the money each time because they were previously paying for you know the four national TV radio stations and the six digital ones and the plus ones mm. and the RT news yeah. channel and mm. all these other ancillary services yeah. that they now might not be getting and there's also separately you know when you talk about the outsourcing of, of some functions or having them made by the independent sector like news and current affairs is so core to RT stuff that it can't be done there but other things like Fair City like would, would Fair City now have to be made by an independent company and basically bought in by mm. RTE or even sports things like you know yeah. we, we look at the the deluxe uh, you know totally appropriate like high end production values that go into doing an All-Ireland final for hurling or football and all the extra cameras that you've got on Jones's Road to get all the colour and mm-hmm. the ones that are there to Same, yeah. get them off the buses like the real deluxe stuff that you know we hand on heart would not be able to replicate because we just don't have the means to do that if you outsource all of that to a private company that you're not going to get it done to the same quality because no independent producer has the means or resources to do it in the same way as RTE does so the viewer loses out because the product that you get just isn't as well put together well, the, the point on that is, I think Backhurst yesterday, we were chatting to Kevin Backhurst in the 5.30. He didn't want to single out any specific programme in terms of, well, that might be farmed out to the independent production sector. Mm. But there is going to be an emphasis in this in live programming. So in, in terms of live programming, well, sport is one of the probably, is probably the key for that. In mm. terms of ratings, winners, if it's live programming, it's your news, which isn't going to be affected by this. Mm. And it's going to be sport. Um, so I think that's probably going to be something they're going to they're going to protect, and it is something which they've invested a lot of their money, the mm-hmm. cash they have on hand. Uh, sporting rights has been a big thing mm-hmm. that they've opened the wallet for before. So I'd say that's probably something that they want to protect. But everything else, there was no refusal to to sort of you know dampen down any speculation that the likes of a fair city or the likes of even any sort of entertainment programs or any other programming might be amongst the things which are looked at in the future. So I mean, these are huge, huge, huge changes. Do you think that it will be enough, Sarah, based on what you've heard so far for the public to get back on board? I know that's an interesting question. I just think this question around the licence fee is so interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, like I've interviewed so many people on the streets about this in the last couple of months and they'll say to you, like, look, it was one less thing to pay for. Like, it's just people are really honest about that. You know Mm. what I mean? They kind of feel like they're justified and they're not paying for it at the moment. And I just don't know how do you, like, circle that back? How do you get back to a place where people, you know... Like how many, you know, do you run loads of ads on TV, you know, people knocking on your front door, the TV license inspector, do you, do you try and, you know, frighten people into paying it again? I don't know what, like, what's the motive here? Like how, I don't know how you get it back around again. Like, I don't think that while I, while I have to say my heart does go out, I have to say to anyone who's going to find themselves you know, losing their jobs and all of this because like I say, I, I really do worry that it will be people who've worked incredibly hard who are not necessarily the big stars of RT that have been the backbone of the organisation that will end up, you know, losing their jobs. Well, I really, my heart goes out to the individuals. I do actually feel quite um, hopeful about the changes and I'm hopeful that, you know, it will be a more resilient and a more sustainable state broadcaster. So look, there's definitely hope in it. What was the mood, did you think, Richard, of, of Kevin Backhurst and all of this? You know, what was his sense of it? Did he feel like positive about these changes that were going to be implemented or yeah like I mean hard to read standard brave face well able like I mean he's been doing the rounds as he has done for any sort of milestone along his Mm. path of since he's come in as director general Mm. he's done basically run the gamut of all media interviews available and he doesn't seem to be you know you know he doesn't seem to be shrinking in the light of any of the questions that have been arisen so far on it he, he was sort of saying that he believes that, yeah, there is some good questions which are being asked by staff, but he doesn't feel that staff are up in arms that this is going to be some sort of an industrial relations situation at this point in time. Although I'd counteract that in saying that, you know, unions out at RT, including SIPTU, for example, have described mm-hmm. this as something that they are going to fight, but we don't know what that might mean at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, some staff were just like, look, this is, a, this is a sad day in many ways, that it is, you know, a cutting 
out of some of the key features of RTE. And, you know, they felt that over the years, while there was excess in RTE and there were things which they weren't happy about in terms of the direction that RTE had taken in recent years, they felt that at least they were investing in the future. And that they were, they had, they had, they had you know, mm. this, is a, this is an institution in Ireland which has been around for decades and decades and decades and decades from the very earliest days of the state. And now you're coming to a point in time where you know, some of those facilities, some of those key roles they feel are going to be surrendered mm. uh, to companies which are outside of that. I, for one, I don't think that this will necessarily be enough to straighten everything out. Yes. And I, I think there mm. might be a request for more money again sometime later next year if you just run the sums. So the licence fee... RTE's total income was about 350 million euro a year, or at least was before all of mm-hmm. this. The license fee was just over half of that. So you could say the license fee was give or take 180, 90 million. And, and if a third of people don't pay the license fee, which is totally, so you know, foreseeable, mm-hmm. then you lose 60 or 70 million out of the money that you were due to get from TV license fee. And if mm-hmm. the government is only plugging up 40 million of that, there will be another deficit and they're going to have to possibly go back to the well. And that might mean more uncomfortable decisions for RTE and government in the later half of next year. Yeah, and probably more uncomfortable truths will probably come out as well because most of those reviews, which are still yet to be completed, more of those and potentially more bad news and more things from RT's past getting in the way of its future. Now, after many weeks of waiting, on Tuesday night there was the news that uh, a large number of Irish citizens who have been waiting to get out of Gaza, uh, will now be leaving. Uh, We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, The process of moving people who are Irish citizens out of Gaza, has begun. Uh, If anything develops while we're recording this, if we get any word, Mm. we'll bring it to you. Uh, But while this is good news, Zara, it is a bittersweet moment for a lot of these people as well. Oh God, yeah, it absolutely is. Because I suppose we have to remember that just because these people are among, I suppose we'd consider the lucky ones. I mean, they haven't been lucky at all. They've been through an incredibly difficult couple of weeks. They are now saying goodbye to people who they love, who are not on any list, who are not dual citizens of any other country, who have no chance of leaving, no chance of getting out. And that is hard. They don't know if they say goodbye to these loved ones, will they ever see them again? So it's a real, like it's bittersweet in in the most severe way because the relief of being able to flee the war zone or you know get out of that that danger zone but knowing that you may not see those loved ones again you know I know an example of one lady who has is on the list to get out today but you know had hoped to help get somebody else's children out but the children aren't on the list and you know she has her own children and so she has to go and and you know not aid those kids to get out hopefully they will get out in the coming days but you know even that alone having to make that decision to sort of say I've got to go. You know, it's just, it's really, really difficult. Mm. Without personalising it too much, like Richard, you have an ongoing contact with Ibrahim Halaga and, mm. and his family over the last sort of month or so. Like, it must be very raw for them, that kind of sense of this being a double-edged, bittersweet moment that they're they're able to end this for themselves, but they know there's plenty of others for whom this is going on. Yeah, completely. And so, um, Ibrahim um, basically found out last night that his name was going to be on the list. Um, he confirmed that to us in Virgin Media News. Uh, we're the first people outside the family who we told and it was basically he's had many sleepless nights since he's been in Gaza with his family mm-hmm. with his three young kids his wife Amida who we've heard from and they've documented their experience in Gaza since the war began uh, but this is the first sleepless night where there was potentially a positive outcome because this is what they'd been looking for mm-hmm. was to get out um, but if you think about everything that they've already gone through from the start of this like when they they came to Gaza on an extended holiday to see their family they had an apartment in Gaza City which Ibrahim had invested 
Mm. Back to his life savings in. They were very proud about all the work they'd done to redo that, which had been that department, which had been badly damaged in the last round of violence before all of this. That's now been destroyed in Israeli airstrikes. Uh, all three of those children have suffered the impacts of starvation, drinking unclean water. Um, they have woken up in the middle of the night screaming at the sound of airstrikes. They have heard the incessant buzzing of Israeli drones over the family farmhouse non-stop over the last number of, mm-hmm. of weeks. As well as that, they have also lost literally dozens of members of their extended family. Um, and for all of that, and now they're on the way out and it was basically a last minute. It, as far as the Alaga family is concerned, they thought this was a last minute thing because they actually issued an appeal directly mm-hmm. to the Taoiseach and the Taunashti yesterday because there was a blackout coming as of the time of recording mm-hmm. um, that there's no fuel to run phones and data services in Gaza. So if the data services are gone, how are you going to know you're on the list? How are you going to be in contact with the Irish Embassy and the Department of Foreign Affairs? They felt that today, Wednesday, was their last chance of getting out. Mm. Now, luckily that has worked out, but they leave behind them their family members, Ibrahim's parents, aunts, uncles, loved ones, friends who have all helped each other through this process and who will now have to stay in uh, the Gaza Strip under siege uh, which is being obviously now in, in Israeli invaded now at this point mm. in time. And just starvation. There's no fuel. So again, as of today, there was it was initially reported at the start of the day that fuel was getting through the Rafa crossing. So the Rafa crossing today with all 30 Irish people hopefully going through it, touch wood, plus everybody else who's going through that. There's also fuel going through for the first time. Mm. However, what was not initially disclosed is that the fuel is not going to be used to run water services or the hospitals, which you might talk about a little bit what later on. It for? It's to fuel the aid trucks so that they can continue to go back and forth. So, Wow. The, the aid trucks, which are already not carrying enough aid as it currently stands anyway. So this is the situation which the people, the Irish uh, Palestinian people who are now leaving today and who may be leaving more, leaving tomorrow potentially, uh, they are leaving all this behind them. That is a very difficult thing. Mm. Notwithstanding all of the trauma and all the things that they have seen over the last number of weeks, they leave family members and loved ones behind who they know will have to live with this for the very foreseeable future. And moreover, that it's such a, a long possible road to any kind of normality coming back because these are things which which effectively happen to these communities overnight. But it's not as if, you know, you, you ostensibly could have a ceasefire in a week or two or three and then things go back to normal afterwards because the scale of the infrastructural damage is such that it's not as if you could just restore yeah. heat or restore fuel or restore energy or restore water and things go back to normal because people are going to be living in refugee camps or in refuges or in other places because their homes are destroyed. Mm-hmm. And you can't just turn that back. And I, I just can't imagine how difficult that must be for people who are lucky enough to be able to get out but who know that those they're leaving behind are just destined to be dealing with this damage this this like barely qualifies as life yeah for for who knows how long I can't imagine what that's like. No, and I also think as well we need to remember and that's a really good point that you make Gavin about the fact that even if there was a ceasefire in the morning the cleanup operation and the idea of trying to rebuild your mm. life is just so vast. It's years of a job. It's really difficult yeah. to know. But then you look at people who will talk about because I know one of the clips that you had sent on when you were away actually of Ibrahim's little boy was talking about how they'd just gotten the apartment in Gaza City yeah. cleaned up after the last escalation yeah. and yeah. that they were just delighted to have gotten the place tidied up and like you know he talked about his little World Cup trophy his kids World Cup oh, trophy yeah. all his little bits and pieces mm. and that they had such pride in their home but that was part they had to clean that up after you know and I think like that's you know when you speak to people you know I spoke to a young guy Mohanad who you know grew up in Gaza and now lives in Ireland and his mum and his little baby sister actually are on the list fingers crossed to get out today but like 
he says to me at that time, like, you know, Zara, I lived through like three escalations by, by the time I was 15. He'd lived through three different escalations. So like, even if there's a ceasefire tomorrow and they try and rebuild their lives, you're permanently living in fear of when the next outbreak is coming, you know? Mm. The thing about it as well is, is that Northern Gaza, um, I don't know how hospitable, um, you know, or habitable it's going to be mm. for a long, long time to come. And you hear comments being made by Israeli ministers saying that, well, maybe it'll be a good thing if the voluntary movement, as he described it, of uh, Gazans out of Gaza, and that they permanently do not come back, uh, if that might be a solution to the the the, the situation in Gaza. Which the, the solution is just evacuating it and move. just uninhabited forever. Now, I don't know if that was a solar run, if that was the Israeli position on this. That would be a war crime. Uh, that is textbook definition of that is the mass displacement in that in that sense, uh, but that is something which is obviously a consideration as well. Particularly now when you see what's happening uh, um, around the main hospitals in Gaza, mm. Al Shifa Hospital, which is the biggest hospital mm. in Gaza, again it has been. Um, I think since the incursion began, it has been you know probably one of the major stories that Israel has you know identified a number of hospitals and said this is where Hamas is hiding. Mm. It's command centres and whatnot. And this is where um, internationally things start to fall apart in terms of where do people push back on what's happening in Gaza? Where do you appeal for constraint? Where do you say, oh, well, Israel has the right to defend itself? Because that's where it's all starting to get hazy and the international response just falls to bits. The World Health Organization has lost contact with its doctors who are in there. You have some doctors who are able to get the word out. Uh, They're describing scenes of absolute chaos and panic as people are being pulled away from their families and they've heard shots fired and, and whatnot. Mm. Um, this is a very, very, very dark situation. Very grim. And you know what, actually, as you say that, just it reminds me of a clip I was mentioning to you in the newsroom a couple of weeks ago. Like two weeks ago, I was quoting a clip of Dr. Mike Ryan from the WHO. People remember him. He's, he's the Irish... What's Mike Ryan's title exactly? He's clinical director or something. Yeah, I should yeah. know that. But him talking about well, no longer but executive director, executive of director. The yeah, fair health emergency pretty, pretty significant. Um, and an, an Irish man. But Dr. Mike Ryan two weeks ago, before all of this happened, Richard, but you know, saying that how can they open field hospitals in Gaza? How can they send in more medical practitioners when they can't even guarantee the safety of the people that are there at the moment? And he said mm. he's worked in many you know, crisis zones in his entire career. And he said he's never, just he's never seen anything like this. It is beyond any sort of, like I just, I think, and the thing is I I worry sometimes when I talk to you about this last week, Gavin, I said, I really do worry sometimes that we are becoming um, slightly desensitised or that people are, you know, every time people open up their social media that they're kind of, you know, they're seeing all these images and like, you know, it's been four, nearly five weeks now like I think it's really important for everyone to continue to like remind yourself mm. that this is a lived experience mm. of people like this is not just another day of shocking images because you know and that's human nature like how many times are you going to be exposed to, to pictures of, of you know buildings collapsed and, mm. and people being pulled from the rubble before you kind of go oh it's just you know it, it's not like every day things are getting worse yeah yeah and I think that's that's why, I mean, sometimes you can look at it and just to put out like your, your sort of wonky journalist sort of hat on, you're like, well, why are we looking for, you know, Irish voices in this story? Yeah. But it has been a way that a lot of people have actually connected with the stories, whether it be Thomas Hand speaking about his daughter, Emily, who is suspected of being taken hostage by Hamas, or it is Ibrahim documenting life under siege and bombardment. And it is the little details of like the lived experiences of people mm. Um who are able to share it in a position where it's very, very difficult. Mm. That that is, if that's what the anchor is to people, 
to help them to understand what life for ordinary people is in these situations. Mm. Well, then that is nothing but a good thing. Mm. Like, I mean, since I was speaking to Ibrahim last night, kind of refreshing the phone, he's gone out of phone coverage at this point in time, somewhere between, in that sort of no man's land between Gaza and Egypt in the processing mm. sort of thing. Like, the amount of people who continually messaging saying, looking for updates now. And I think that is that is a good sign that people are here and connecting. Invested. And it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah, it can be the micro, the the one individual family or, you know, one person's story or yeah. two people's or connecting with it because it's Irish, whatever. Maybe that is, if that's what helps people to understand it and get to grips with it, the human cost of all of this. Well, then maybe that's, you know, that is an important, important thing that people Can are doing. I ask you as well, because I know, and maybe you don't want to probably, but I just think, you know, it's interesting. You've been so close to, to the family and you've been talking to them all the time. Were you worried about them for a while on a personal level? I think the, the yeah, and it is because there was the point when, just when the invasion began after all of the bombardment, and we remember we were waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks for Israel to go in on the ground attack. Mm. And then the phones went off. Mm. Um, I was pretty certain, and even from chatting to Ibrahim, he won't mind me saying this, that we were pretty sure um, that we may never, this was probably the last time we were going to be chatting. Um, like, you had to do things to sort of, like he asked me at one point, again, he won't mind me sharing this. He's like, just here's my low coordinates on a map so that if it's a, a question of recovery, this is how people can find me. It's like Khan Yunus. Um, that's why it's been such a huge concern over the last number of days when phone coverage has dropped out because of fuel problems um, that you don't know if the phone's ever going to, if you're ever going to get the two, the two takes on, on WhatsApp again. Mm. Uh, that has been a huge concern. Like it has been one of the things which people have done and volunteered to do uh, and there has been a lot of reporting on it. It's this connecting Gaza thing where people in Gaza have been connected by this journalist who's based in Egypt. It's worth looking up on Instagram. Uh, so the people who can can keep connecting with people who are in Gaza by using Israeli e-SIMs. Okay. So that because okay, yeah. basically that you're, you're hooking yourself up virtually to an Israeli phone network so that it won't really matter if the phone systems are down so in Gaza. Palestinians run out of fuel that they can keep the Israeli masts going and that you'll be able to work off their servers instead of the the other ones. Exactly, yeah. And that has been something which has worked particularly for people who are closer to the border wall effectively. Mm. Uh, hasn't worked all the time. Ibrahim, it has not really worked for at all. Which is why, again, today was the deadline really mm. in terms of getting him out. Um, but it's, it's so remarkable that, you know, it's come today given the fact that day. that deadline, you know, sort of was looming over it. Yeah, on the day when Michael Martin is also there. Can well, I ask about yeah. this, Gavin? Because yeah. like this is something which is this is very last minute out of the blue. Yeah. This this trip. Michael Martin, we obviously spoke about the fact that he went to the Middle East before yeah. this all happened. I was there in the West Bank using Israeli eSIMs. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's going back to the same places again. And this was all very last minute. Is there a feeling that there are, you know, that there's an element of making things happen here? You uh, pointed out to us over the weekend that Poland had been one of the other big EU member states that hadn't really had any yes. citizens evacuated until such time as their security minister travelled to the region at the weekend and suddenly there was movement and the citizens started going. Um, one thing which I don't know whether either of you guys have, have been told by the diplomats whenever you do the UN week in New York, but certainly mm-hmm. I've been told it whenever we do uh, Washington for St. Patrick's Day. Diplomacy is a contact sport. Uh, and this, by the way, underpins the reason why the government is rejecting those motions in the Dáil today and it wants to keep the Israeli ambassador here. Diplomacy is a thing that you achieve by going to see people face to face. And if you are a peripheral island on the far side of Europe and you're ringing up the local embassy being like, come on, can you help get our guys out? Like the the Egyptian embassy and all the consulates there and everyone in Tel Aviv and everyone in Jerusalem and those on the ground in Gaza and Ramallah have 
so many other different competing demands that if you are just sitting on a phone at the other corner of a continent making phone they're calls and hoping things would they're leaving you on hold. It's two blue ticks and you're not getting a reply. Mm-hmm. You have to go out there and shake hands and do stuff. Now, I don't want to run positive PR and say that there's a definite link between Michal Martin showing up in Cairo and there suddenly being movement for Irish citizens on the same day. But it's difficult not to think that there's a probable link mm. and that mm. that is a positivity. And Michal Martin will now go to Israel. He'll speak to Eli Cohen, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, second time in two months. He'll go to Ramallah and speak to Mohammed Abbas, the Palestinian president, for the second time in two months. Um, if you want to get things done, by its nature, you have to go out and see people and see the whites of their eyes. That's why embassies exist. It's why the UN exists. Otherwise, you just have video calls. But you well, go out there and you have yeah. people deployed there to go and talk to each other in the flesh. It does kind of go back to that old-fashioned press the flesh, you know, have that conversation thing. And it's probably one of the reasons why Tom Hand ended yeah. up coming to Dublin this week mm-hmm. as well. Mm. So um, we had obviously spoken to Tom Hand last week um, on Zoom and didn't actually expect that he would be seven days later in front of us in Dublin and got a call to say that he, he was here. Um, Tom Hand very much feels that you know, making these journeys and he's going to the United States later this week and I think he's going to be coming back from the States to the UK, just having face-to-face conversations, asking people to help basically, you know, mm-hmm. making representations to them. Um, sitting down with Tom on Monday, like, do you know what? It's just, so our producer said to me in the newsroom during the week, like, how was the interview? How, how was Tom Hand? I said, Tom Hand is actually, my heart, you just couldn't even begin to put yourself into his shoes and mm-hmm. what he's going through. I mean, I know and people have what we've watched the interviews but actually when you meet him in person he he actually put up held up his hand at one, he's he's shaking constantly he is constantly shaking he says he feels that shaking inside and on the outside he is living in this constant fear and just wants his daughter home just wants to know that she's safe wants any sign any indication that she's all right um and you know, it's it's remarkable that he has held himself together as long as he has because, mm. you know, the re- I just don't know. But the idea of travelling, as you say, Richard, and having that face-to-face conversation, he's really hoping that those journeys will have an impact. I mean, he's hoping that Michal Martin will have an impact mm. this week for Emily's case. Michal Martin today thanking the Egyptian Foreign Minister for his proactive engagement in terms uh, or in relation to uh, the hopeful release then of Emily Hand. Uh, he says that everyone is seized with this, a child captive, uh, kidnapped and held in a war zone. So this is something actually I think that there is actually in terms of broad political support for the efforts that were made here. There was initially uh, a lot of should we be doing this? Should we go out there and speaking to the Israelis? Because there are some who would think that if Israel is guilty of such horrible crimes as you might see them to be that you shouldn't be going out there and having any kind of diplomatic engagements at all. You should be trying to turn them into a pariah state. It's a legitimate view but the alternative view is if you don't go out there and talk to them face to face, nothing gets done. Yeah. So I think that this is, this is, it's it's all, it's very rare that we're in a situation where we're seeing diplomacy happen in real time mm. with potential benefits of it happening like this. Uh, I suppose all we can say at this point in time is that we're going to keep our eyes peeled across, you know, all the situations relating to uh, Gaza and Israel uh, over the next number of days. And if there's anything to update people on, we'll bring it to you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There have been a shed load of bad UK political dramas made over the last number of years for various uh, TV production companies. Uh, I didn't see a twist in any of those bad productions. That's so good. As unpredictable and as weird as David Cameron emerging from the, I think it was a Land Rover or a Range Rover yeah. and walking up 10 Downing, or walking up Downing Street yeah. towards number 10. He's back. It was one of hey, the Burley's more, reaction. There. It was one of the more fun moments in our group chat on Monday morning when that happened and I shared with you that like, yeah. Sky tweeted the video yeah. of um, Kay Burley and Sam Coates, their, their deputy political editor, standing there like watching the people coming down number 10 and going, right, okay, here's somebody or coming down Downing Street watching someone climb out of a Jeep going, who's it going to be? This person is obviously in the frame for a senior it's government job so in this gosh. reshuffle. And then like the, the, the stunned silence before the David Cameron? The, 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 the actual punctuation of that, the actual shock in the voice. It was so yeah. good. Genuinely a momentous occasion in broadcasting. <laughs> Honestly, I've just been like hooked to my veins all week. I've just been glued mm. to, I'm, I'm, I've had Sky News on all week and in the background as I'm potting around. I just find these twists and turns truly phenomenal. Not I mean, Bobby Ewing. It's, 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 it's pure Bobby Ewing territory. All the comparisons there, there's the Bobby Ewing Dallas thing, there's the, you know, uh, people were comparing to George Costanza in Seinfeld just coming back and pretending <laughs> like, you know, yeah, that's a guy, that he'd exactly. never been fired or whatever. And he hadn't been fired and just showed up and tried to brazen it's, it out. But it's just, it's it's just, or it's just like, you know, a relegated football team in England just getting Sam Allardyce on the phone like we get the <laughs> other guy back again. Oh my um, but Good reference. What's the... What's the out? What's what's the goal here? Bringing David Cameron. Well, back. I would say number one, it was to get people to stop talking about Suella Braverman, which like they're still talking about her, but like not as yeah. much though. You know what I mean? It's that whole thing of like putting a dead cat on the table and it being a total. It just moves the conversation. I mean, it definitely away. has. It has nudged it on a small bit. Obviously, she came out yesterday and had her few bits to say, but like you know, ultimately, it has moved well, it on a bit. Everything that Rishi Sunak is doing in the last two months or so has been geared at like, what can we do to arrest this idea that we are a busted flush and that we might have a prospect of mm. scraping out another majority at the next election. Yeah. which but is within the next 12 months so like this is a real thing David Cameron put out a statement on Monday after his reappointment which said something interesting that he was now going to be part of a government that was basically going to put the proposition to the people in other words this is Rishi Sunak's election team David Cameron is going to be Britain's voice their, their foreign secretary unelected David Cameron yeah well <laughs> Lord I, I, Cameron, I Lord Cameron considering yeah. that David Cameron uh, had to resign last time because he lost a campaign and people decided that they didn't want unelected people determining Britain's foreign policy <laughs> and now you've got Lord Cameron so in the House wild. of Lords accountable to nobody deciding these things but so basically it is an attempt to portray we are serious people yeah and this is a grown up we, returning we are, we are responsible grown ups and we are capable of running the country but what but then what, is that Rishi sort of almost conceding that you know he was running a, a crash cabinet <laughs> kind of can be crash cabinet like, That's going to be the title of the episode now. But it's, what, what does it say about his um, about his his party that you know there was nobody there who was a qualified candidate for the foreign office, and that he oh, went yeah. to the back catalogue and was like, "Get me that guy." Yeah. Um, Just play Wonderball, Richie. But like, because I, I can I can see this in two ways. In in some ways, I can actually see this as after many years of unserious people 
as you know, other governments would see them uh, in the Foreign Office and in British government leadership. That they have a guy now who has a bit of gravitas in an international level. And on the other hand, I see this as the guy who literally kicked off all of the chaos. I was just going to, I was Britain. literally just about to say that. Like, Over the last few years, who off. called the Brexit referendum. Not just that chaos, but also objectively, uh, when he was the Prime Minister, like foreign affairs and foreign policy was the one bit that he continually kept screwing up because not alone was there the, uh, obviously calling the referendum, which, you know, was supposed to be an mm-hmm. attempt to lance the boil and ended up just, you know, spewing over everything for for the seven years since then. But also, uh, mm-hmm. he was responsible for helping to overthrow Muammar Gaddafi, which, you know, that was objectively yeah. it worked out to be a disaster because there's another civil war, which is still ongoing ever mm-hmm. since. Mm-hmm. He also uh, tried to, uh, I think, became the first prime minister in like nearly 100 years to lose a vote in the Commons about foreign policy because do you remember there was the use of chemical weapons in Syria yeah. Uh, yeah. by the Assad regime backed by Russia? And he wanted to intervene militarily to say like, no, this is a line we can't allow to cross. And he couldn't convince his own parliament full of his own backbenchers that intervening was a good idea. Now, people would say, yeah, well, it's, maybe it shouldn't be your place to get involved. But Britain's failure to get involved is arguably what has emboldened Vladimir Putin to do everything he's done ever since. But so be- that's that's on David Cameron for doing that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of couple of things there. All right. yeah. <laughs> there's a few bits there. But Richard, do you think, as you mentioned there, you know, do you think that there's an element of like subtly reminding people of better times pre-Brexit and that David Cameron is, is a sort of a hark back to maybe a more stable time in Britain when Britain wasn't you know, a sort of, I want... He was very, he was very mean, popular. He was he very was popular. popular. He won some and big, big young elections. as well. He was a young, vibrant, yeah. young girl. But for so many people, people, he's going to be, he's going to be the guy who brought in Brexit and then, as yeah, Danny Dyer said, stuck his trotters up in, in Nice <laughs> uh, and then did some, uh, was involved in lobbying scandals since leaving the office. Oh yeah, um, of course. Very disappointed. If you're going to channel Danny Dyer, you're not going to do the accent. No, I can't do it. Can't do it. Also folks, do Google Pig Gate. Uh, just, just do, just to go back to it in case anybody forgets it. Yeah. One thing actually, on a serious note, David Cameron's position previously on Gaza is actually something which would probably see him to the left and more Gaza sympathetic mm. than even the Labour Party in Britain are at the moment, in which he's described Gaza as an open air prison and basically said, there's no way that you're ever going to solve this if you continue to treat people, yeah. i.e. people in Gaza, yeah. as if they are prisoners in an open air thing and cut off from vital services. That's something to watch out for because he is also considered a friend of Israel. There is but one, uh, one masterstroke actually in the whole situation, in all of this, this whole charade that was played out uh, writ large on Sky News, is that there was actually a bit, I think, a bit of a masterstroke pulled by Rishi Sunak here in that he booted Suella Braverman mm-hmm. when Nigel Farage you, you went there, yeah. had flown yeah. off to the jungle for I'm a Celebrity because yeah. that man was on the warpath and marching and getting support amongst the Tories. And now that he's going to be eating kangaroo testicles and other words <laughs> the drop in my voice there will tell it's, you that I had it other words it, it, in mind he was thinking about whether this is post-watershed and it is yes, yeah. he's going to be eating kangaroo testicles there's no doubt yeah. about it yeah. is Suella going to be on I'm a Celebrity you reckon god imagine if she was oh, a drop parachuted in, in. Yeah. Imagine. literally parachuted in yeah. alien jungle uh, but it, it, like genuinely you, you've hit on something because it is actually if you're ever going to do something that's going to upset the right of the Conservatives like getting rid of the Home Secretary who wanted to deport every asylum seeker to Rwanda and leave them there and never have them settling in Britain at all. Like the time to do it is when the the critic in chief is going to be busy gobbling on nether region in the nether regions of the planet. David Cameron. Out of town. <laughs> for his part, David Cameron has said that he has one job now, which is, I suppose, is the least of the, the equipment he can say. You're a new manager. I have one job. You had one job, David Cameron. Uh, so seven years after leaving Down Street, he's back 
in the saddle. We await with bated breath to see how this unfolds. How gets on. And if you'd like to watch Nigel Farage eating various unmentionables from unmentionables, yeah. you can watch I'm a Celebrity, which starts this Sunday on Virgin Media One. Quick march of technology has been halted in the north of England, guys. Do you want to know I why? welcome this. Booths, which is not to be confused with, with Boots, the, the chemist. Oh, so it's, it's, not the, it's not the chemist? No. It's, oh. <laughs> maybe we got this wrong in the group. Right 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 yeah. We're all out. So Booths, which is a small chain that sells groceries in the north of England since 1847, has announced this Where week... Where are they from Cornwalls? Uh, yeah. <laughs> my, my horse voice has led me to a strange accent place. Uh, it would give me... It was, sorry. Uh, they've announced this week that it would be getting rid of the self-checkouts in all but two of its 28 stores. So the chain, the, the chain is booking a trend that has remade retail shopping around the world over the last 20 years. It says that having its employees interact with customers is going to provide a better experience. I love this. That's there, a great move. There will no longer be an unexpected item in that bagging area and I am here for it. I hate self-checkout. I always go to the till. What's your problem with it? There's always an unexpected item in the bagging area. There's I think too much goes wrong. Too, too much, much goes wrong. wrong. There's too That's many no problems. Human you're standing there, you're waiting for somebody to come over and swipe the thing and press the button. I literally, the other day I was in the Tesco crossroad from my house and there's only one person now working at the till. Mm. Supervising the automated Supervising ones. everything else. Okay. And like, I like to go to the little till and go, hi, how are you? And how's your day? And what time do you close at? And I like having the chats and doing the whole and, like they're like, can you please just use self checkout so that I can monitor all the self checkouts? And I'm like, okay, sure. You could be running interference for then, somebody so else. So then I'm still stuff. trying to chat to the guy while I'm doing the self checkout. And the thing, I I would say for like six items I bought, there was three different problems. Yeah. For six items, I'm like, I can't deal that's, with self checkout. Sounds like the the exception. Marvel no, it's not the exception. Like, oh, it's my it's my regular lived experience. The self checkout in the Tesco that I do the 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 big shop in. And you're self checking out a big shop. A lot of the time, you're yeah. self checking out a, a ah. and and the the unexpected the amount of time you spend looking for around for someone oh, to come and help you. I expected item it's just not as much of a thing. You would self check out a big shop. Not I wouldn't I would barely self check out six items. Never mind yeah. a big shop. I'd have oh, lost absolutely. my no way, yeah, no, I I was no, no. two cartons of, link, of milk in I would. No. Actually I was recently when I was away I was in um, one of the airports uh, I was in at one of those Amazon self shop oh, things. Yeah. Oh right, okay. quite so where you just walk through. your way in. Yeah, and I, I went. I went in because I actually didn't realize it was one of those. You don't. So you don't have to like go up to a tailor or anything. You just yeah. walk out with it. Whatever, you just carry out whatever you what? want to buy, and it'll get that so debit like from you, your Amazon. So you swipe yourself in. It knows how you're going to pay, and then you just take the stuff and leave. Yes, but but how th- does it know what you took? Because um, it's basically all just scanned, isn't it? Okay. When you're walking out with it. Okay. But anyway, this is my point of it. This is is that when I was leaving, having not bought anything, uh, some poor woman got mangled by the sliding doors, which shut so, so quickly on her. As she was trying to get in. Oh, uh, so yeah. So you can't leave these things, all so these what, things, the, to automation. Some sort of RoboCop that wanted to pull down the shutters. So I think it's because I was walking out, and she was walking in through the inways. It must have just confused the system and just went bah, 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 and just shut and over. Clearly, and like, made that sound. The technical clearly at yeah. her, like yeah. But like, I mean, these. I, I just think like there's a, there's a place for the self checkout thing because it can speed t- things through through. But it should it shouldn't be the doesn't default speed, setting though. It doesn't speed. I am I'm convinced it is much quicker to go to the human being. It, like. Every time well, a lot of it's you when you're making conversation and you're asking well, what's going enough, on like, in the world. No, when I make conversation as they're the like doing the process, like, but I just think that I, I'm delighted to hear this. Yeah. I would like to see more of this is what I'm saying. I've been long campaigning for the return of somebody on the four courts and petrol stations and I was just saying to you earlier that Except actually, I know oh, I love, I love that. What like, a lad to hold the pump. Yeah. 
Like, but I you just like to do that old like ninety again, thing where you'd have like twenty quid and you'd hand it out the, win- the, yeah, the window lovely. and someone. Would Although I did go to a petrol station recently, they did have that and it was totally unexpected. And then I thought he was trying to rob me. <laughs> like, I got to have the, the cash car. anymore. Like, would they bring you out a contactless terminal or what did they do? No. So this guy, I got out. I was at um, this long story, and I basically to summarize yeah. it very. We don't have time for a long story. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. No. Okay. Anyway, I pulled into the petrol station. Was about to get out to put diesel in. A man came to the window, obviously to like fill my tank. I thought he was going to rob me. <laughs> so then I was like, no. No, thank you no thank you and then when I went inside to the till they were like oh yeah I know like John fills the tanks all the time and I was like god I've been I've been crying out for John's in my life to fill tanks and you just got time. him laid off because he's not doing I didn't I didn't yeah I left him do it in the end but yeah anyway. maybe more adventures from Zara King and John on the guard four courts <laughs> in future episodes of the group chat but that's all the time we have for this one uh Zara Gavin thank you very much thank indeed thank you very much thank we'll be back soon thanks so much everybody for listening bye, bye.